Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani, and I'd like to welcome you to another self-coaching session where I answer real-life questions regarding emotional struggle. These questions are submitted by readers to my website. And today's question comes from Mary. She writes, I've been in therapy for years and have thoroughly explored my childhood. I believe I know the reason why I'm so anxious. So why am I still anxious? Well, sometimes knowing the why isn't important. So let's get into that today. Why isn't the why important? Well, let's start out by using an analogy. Think of a cigarette smoker. Cigarette smokers start smoking, they develop a habit, and then they decide, well, I think it's time to quit smoking. So what does the smoker do? Does he go back or she go back and say, hmm, now why did I take that first cigarette? It's not important. You see, it's just not important why you started doing something harmful, but what is important is that you realize that, like any habit, Knowing the why, knowing why you started something, isn't nearly as important as, well, what the heck are you going to do about it now? And that's what I'd like to talk about today. What can we do about it now? So whether you suffer from anxiety, depression, it doesn't matter. What matters is, what are we going to do about it? And it doesn't matter where it comes from. You know, if your childhood was too strict or your potty training was too lenient, it really doesn't matter. It only matters that the past is reflected in today, in the present. So everything you need to know about the past is encapsulated in you today, in the habits that you bring to the plate today. You today are a manifestation of everything that has transpired up until this point. So you see, let's, let's start looking first at what we're going to do today to unravel the mystery of the past. And we'll leave the mystery of the past to the traditional analysts and those that are just curious. But for us who want to stop struggling, let's kind of consider the past somewhat irrelevant. I say somewhat because certainly knowing why something happens or where it comes from can be illuminating it can really help amplify what we're trying to do in the present. But if, if you're one of these people who just doesn't remember the past, not to worry. It's not that important. What's important is what we're going to do today. And what we're going to do today is take a look at anxiety, depression, and all emotional struggle as habits. Now, I often say this is a heretical way to approach anxiety and depression, especially when for for years and years and years, if not decades, we've treated anxiety and depression as mental illness. Now, I've got a big problem with the term mental illness. You see, to me, an illness is something you catch. You're its victim. An infection is something you catch. You step on a rusty nail, you're its victim. I don't like the term illness primarily because it's a misnomer. It was 
Mark Twain who said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the term mental illness isn't almost the right word. It's the wrong word. And the right word is that anxiety, depression, mental illness are habits, habits of insecurity. So accept that for now and bear with me. Accept the notion that what you're suffering from isn't an illness, you're not a victim, and what you've got is a habit. Now, first of all, why is that a better paradigm? Well, think about it a second. We all know about habits. Habits are learned and habits can be broken. Now, we do this every day, don't we? Um, You try to stop biting your nails. That's a habit. So you know how to approach it. You don't look at, I'm biting my nails. I have an illness of nail biting. Of course not. So what we need to do is we need to rethink the way we think and recognize that whatever struggle you're going through now is a habit. And like any other habit, it's time for you to say, what can I do to start breaking this habit? So, like any habit, of course, habits are either reinforced or they're starved, fed or starved. Your job now is to find out what you're doing. What the heck are you doing that is feeding and embellishing your problems? See, once you get at that point, then it becomes a little bit more focused. Okay, So this is what I need to stop doing. You see, a lot of what happens in psychology is that we become rather passive to these reflexive kind of habits. And I say reflexive, almost like knee-jerk. They kind of occur just below the threshold of consciousness because they are, in fact, habits, knee-jerk habits of the mind. So we need to become more conscious of exactly what we're doing and start asking the question of, What can I do to change the way I think? Now, this is a very important concept because what feeds a habit, an emotional habit, or what feeds anxiety and depression are your thoughts. Now, one thought isn't going to make a difference one way or the other. But let's let's take a negative thought. Okay, so you have a negative thought. Now, thoughts are not just, you know, uh, mental abstractions. They're really electrical, chemical events. So one thought, one negative thought, has an electrical, chemical, negative impact on your actual brain. Something as minuscule as it may be changes. Now that, that may not sound startling to you, but it's, it's quite startling to me. Because if we start to pile up one negative thought on another, on another, then our brain eventually begins to become inundated with negativity. And we start to develop a habit, perhaps of depression, moodiness, anxiety. So you see, thoughts matter. That's why I want you from the very start to realize that you don't don't look at thoughts as things that just occur willy-nilly that you can just forget about and go on just allowing yourself to pile up these negativities, these doubts, these fears. No, no. This is time for you to realize you've got to become much more active. 
You know, I make a distinction between active mind, passive mind. Habits usually operate in the passive mind frame, just below that level of uh, threshold of consciousness. So we want to take that reflexive reactivity and make it more conscious. And how do you do that? Well, you start looking more carefully at these things that flow through your mind. Rather than passively allowing negativity to just flow and affect and change your brain chemistry, you start to take an active just decision to scrutinize. Why am I thinking that? Why do I let myself get into that funk? You see, so you start to shine a light of consciousness on these reflexive responses. And you start to bring them to the light of day. And that's where they can be challenged. Now, of course, a person that's swimming with ruminative anxiety may be conscious of the fact that they are absolutely fearful and dreading, say, a a, uh, a root canal or a surgery or a, uh, just a job loss or something coming up. And, and it just may be going over and around and around their mind. And you say to them, okay, now we've got to intervene. You see, because what's happening right now is this doubt, fear, and negativity that you're just piling into your, your mind and your brain. This is going unchecked, unacceptable. So you have to decide to realize that you're not powerless, that you have a choice, a choice to do nothing and to just be hammered by insecurity, even though it, you know, this is not where you want to be. But you need to realize that by doing nothing, you're allowing the passive mind to feed the habit of insecurity. And it's the habit of insecurity that promotes the motor behind anxiety, depression. Again, not illnesses, habits. So where do we begin? Well, we begin by separating facts from emotional fictions. What are the facts? Now, if it's a fact, it's verifiable in the present. Facts are, uh, they're hardcore. Uh, as uh, John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. You know, we can verify a fact, but emotional fictions are more abstract these are the fuzzy areas of things that may happen. You know, it was Mark Twain that said, I've worried about many things in my life, most of which have never happened. So those fuzzy areas, the what-ifs, the projections of insecurity into the future, you see, those are the emotional fictions that we tend to treat as facts. And when you let insecurity paint a picture using emotional fictions of doom and gloom, then you're treating these fictions as facts and you become now powerless. You become hammered by these projections as if they're true. And not only that, not only is your mind beginning to, to really embrace this unnecessary abstract future, but your body is also. When you think about the IRS doing an audit and you start to get into that futuristic possibility, what do you think happens to your body? Well, the same thing happens to your body as would happen if you got a call from the IRS. 
adrenaline, cortisol, stress chemicals start pumping into your body, tension, stress, you react. You see, your body reacts, your mind reacts. We're reacting to insecurity-driven fictions. Now, granted, this is not unusual, nor is it abnormal. You see, it's in our DNA, honestly. And on one level, you might even say that, you know, we were made to anticipate. I mean, let's face it, a cave person back when, if he didn't anticipate a saber-toothed tiger, you probably wouldn't be here today. So anticipation and concern over that anticipated consequence of a saber-toothed tiger, that, that's really an adaptive quality. So to some extent, we want to realize or make a distinction between normal anticipatory thinking or even normal anticipatory worrying versus abnormal or neurotic worrying. So let's say I hear there's a Cat 5 hurricane about to come in and I have this limb hanging over my house. Is it, is it neurotic for me to say, what if that limb falls onto my house? Well, under these circumstances, you can build a very strong case for saying, wait a second, that's a Cat 5 hurricane, 160-mile-an-hour winds, and I have this monster limb just sitting on top of my roof. Now, I think you'll agree that it is understandable that this person is leaving the present and visiting this uncertain future and is going to worry. Okay, so that, that bit of worry, we could say, is understandable. It's proportionate to the circumstances, and it's not at all unhealthy. But what is unhealthy is when we start to get into the disproportionate, the more abstract limbs that don't exist over your house. So this is where we need to constantly be vigilant. Now, you don't have to sit and be aware of every single thought that goes through your mind. You know, that, that would drive anybody crazy. But what you do need to do is when you feel that knot in your stomach, when you feel that vacuous feeling of depression, when you feel yourself challenged with negativity, doubts, and fears, that's where you need to look within and check out the thoughts. Check them out. Where are they going? Are they going towards facts or emotional fictions? Now, we live in a world of uncertainty. So certainly a lot of these things that cause the gut-crenching, hand-wringing feelings that you feel are going to be natural, understandable, and perhaps even inescapable. That's, that's life itself. You see, there is no absence of struggle in life. Struggle isn't always a bad thing. And that's why the person worrying about the Cat 5 hurricane is really in an adaptive mode and will go into gear to do things to protect, collect flashlight batteries, etc., etc. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to anxiety, depression, uh, and all of these kind of worries that seem to pop up. But you do want to go to battle with those that are disproportionate and not driven by circumstance. COVID-19 is a circumstance. Losing your job is a circumstance. Getting COVID-19 is not a circumstance. 
Losing your job, especially if you haven't heard anything from the boss, is not a circumstance. So you see, we, we tend to allow insecurity to wheedle its way in and misinterpret our present by projecting it into an uncertain future. So come back to the present, get involved in the thoughts that whirl about, unchallenged, the reflexive thoughts, the knee-jerk thoughts, and now we need to start approaching the habits of insecurity in such a way that we realize we're not victims of an illness. We are victims of our own habit, however learned, wherever they came from. And whether, whether or not you're going to sit there passively or whether you're going to insist on more appropriate thinking. Now, sometimes, as in ruminative anxiety, it's hard. It's hard. Okay. But you could do something, anything to interrupt the pattern. Distraction. Go for a walk. Count numbers backwards by three, but do something. You see, because then you are not falling prey to reinforcing these, these habits that just will run right through your life if you are of passive mind. So getting back to Mary's question about knowing the past. So, okay, so you go back to your past. Maybe you had a helicopter mom or a disinterested father. Or maybe you are the child of alcoholic parents. You were shaped, yes. And you were sensitized, yes. And as I said earlier, and now you are the aggregate person who reflects all of that woundedness. But the question today is, do you go on reinforcing the woundedness, the powerlessness, the self-distrust, the lack of confidence, the low self-esteem? Or do you realize that that can't exist if you're not reinforcing it? I mean, let's face it, low self-esteem, powerlessness, the, these are historical reflexes, habits, that really have no reason to go on. No reason whatsoever. We prop them up, we keep them alive by reinforcing them. So let's just say you had an over-controlling, hysterical parent. So you picked it up. You became more or less sensitized to life. I recall growing up that where, where my mother was very protective, overprotective. And unfortunately, as I say quite sincerely, I was an only child. So I got the, the real focus of all of that protectiveness. I became very sensitized to life and things that can go wrong. As my mother would say, watch out, don't do it, don't touch that. So you see, I... I developed a sensitivity, um, a more or less acute anticipation of things going awry. That was my reflex. It was why I started to develop anxiety in the first place. It's why I got into psychology. And it's why I felt there had to be an answer. I studied traditional analysis after getting my, my doctorate, I went to the Jungian Institute for Training Analysis for 10 years. I loved it. It was fantastic. The collective unconscious, oh man, the dreams, the power of myth. Fantastic. Wonderful. Loved it. 
but didn't do a thing for my anxieties. What did is I started to realize I needed to go on a different path. You see, I needed to approach things more directly. I needed to become a problem solver. I didn't need to understand more. I didn't need to go into theory more. I needed to understand. So early on in my tenure as a psychologist, I began to look for problem-solving solutions. And it's where self-coaching came about. I realized that first, you need to be motivated. You need to really be able to say to yourself, no more, enough. Yes, I can. You need to not face your problems in a hysterical or in a insecure fashion. You need to face your problems head on with certainty, with an empowered feeling that you're going to take your life back from the insecurity habits of the past. And this is what self-coaching is all about. In self-coaching, I combined three elements. Cognitive psychology, that's what you tell yourself, the thoughts you have and the reframing of those thoughts. Neuroplasticity, the understanding of how our thoughts change our brain. And finally, when we get from the cognitive to the neuroplasticity, we come to coaching. Now, coaching isn't necessarily considered a science. Far from it. I mean, when I first wrote my first book back in 1990-something, there weren't these self there weren't these coaching motion movements, I should say. Um, coaching at that point was just, you know, the Newt Rockney kind of coaching. You get off the bench and you get somebody in the game and you get them empowered and yell at them and scream at them and all that stuff. That was coaching. But that's what I had in mind. You know, getting off the bench, yelling at yourself, doing something, playing the game, not sitting there passively. I call coaching, or at least my form of self-coaching, a motivational science. So I feel that my writing, for example, reflects the three disciplines that I've brought together. Cognitive psychology, neuroplasticity, and the science of coaching. The science of motivation. Now you put all those together, and what you've got is the reality that psychology doesn't have to be complex. It's not rocket science. See, when you break it down to habits, feeding or starving habits, well, it's rather simple, isn't it? You're either feeding the past and the reflexive habits of the past, or you're starving them. So you see, it's not that complex. And I say this to my patients all the time. It's not that complex. Relax. You can do this. You see, we've, we've, we've been so inundated with all the psychological theories of the past hundred years or so, the id, the ego, the unconscious, the collective. Un you know, it's, it's too much, and you feel you need a shrink, someone that you can go to to interpret all of this and put it in the language that everyday people can understand. But you don't need to go to anyone. You know, it doesn't matter if you go to a therapist, a guru. Uh, it just doesn't matter. What matters is that what you need is within you. You've already got the capacity. And if you don't, just imagine any habit you've ever broken in your life. 
This is no different. But the key, and of course the key here, is you need to know what you're dealing with. You need to have those thoughts that are less than conscious, that are sabotaging you. You need to understand that those are the thoughts that have to be challenged. So if you're too passive, if you're not going to dig in and find those thoughts and start to do something, anything, to move you away from those thoughts, then you're going to go on suffering, unfortunately. And this is not where you want to be. You want to be in charge. You've broken many habits in the past. Struggling emotionally is no different. It's a habit. Operant conditioning tells us that when we reinforce any habit, it gets stronger. When we deprive it of reinforcement, it gets weaker. It's that simple. So as you go on today with your life, recognize where you're acting and reacting in a disproportionate way, following emotional fictions. Recognize and intervene. Recognize that, and I say this once, I'll say it 50 times, you are not powerless. You may feel powerless, especially if you're depressed. You may feel powerless and forlorn. But that's what insecurity does. That's how it holds you prisoner. See, you have to understand that anxiety and depression will own you if you do nothing. Just like biting your nails, smoking a cigarette, eating too much chocolate, whatever the habit is, will own you if you allow it. You know, I often see anxiety and depression as kind of like addictions. You know, we become addicted to our worrying. We become addicted to our passivity, to our morose reactivity to life. And like addictions, when we start to pull away, there's, you know, there's a resistance. You know, it's almost, it's almost as if anxiety and depression don't want you to kill them off. But kill them off, you must. And you can. So going forward, starting today, put yourself in the driver's seat. Get out of that backseat passivity. Put yourself behind the wheel. Start separating facts from emotional fictions. That's where it all begins. Make some decisions. Are you going to remain powerless, passive? Or are you going to get behind that wheel and say, no. No, I'm not going to get into those doubts. No, I'm not going to pursue negativity. And no, I'm going to manage my fears rather than capitulate to them. So take charge, one thought at a time. It begins there. Like everything else, it begins at the beginning. But before I end today's talk, I would like to say one thing that is so crucial. Like any habit, be patient. You're not going to change it in one sitting. How long or how many years or how many months did it take for your current habits to establish themselves. You're not going to eradicate any habit in one session. You need to practice. You need to be patient. 
You need to chip away at it. But if you do that every day, little by little, you'll find your answers. And feel free to email me at drjoe at selfcoaching.net. And let me know if you have a question you'd like me to address in an upcoming podcast. And do check out my selfcoaching.net website for more information on how you need to become your best coach. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle is not an option. By definition, victims are powerless, and you are not powerless. Remember, everything is hard until you make it simple. So join me and let's make this simple together. Reach out for